0: You're listening to the Truth in Boots podcast. Join me as we search the Bible for truth about our God, for hope to encourage us through hard trials and struggles, and for answers for anyone who questions our faith. The truth of God's Word is not fragile, impractical, and only used on special occasions like a pair of stiletto heels. God's Word, like a pair of sturdy boots, is meant to be put to work daily and is designed to protect us and help us through the mud, streams, and rocks of life. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Truth and Boots podcast. I'm here again with my friend Jamie Charles, and we are recording part five of her studying Hebrews. Topic today is a better covenant. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> so this is a huge topic. Oh, it's huge. Um, yeah, there's no way
1: we're going to cover everything in this section. <laughs> um, <laughs> it covers several chapters too. You're right. Right. So I'm I'm hopefully going to give you key themes to keep in mind as you read through the chapter and hopefully that will help aid you but there's no way that I could go through verse by verse
0: <laughs> okay well without further ado show us what you've learned
1: okay well um as an introduction I'm going to start somewhere completely different than the book of Hebrews <laughs> um you and I are both big Charles Dickens fans yes fans. Right. So I've read several of his novels, not all of them, but I just started one last night. And it really, well, I didn't actually start the novel. I read part of the introduction already. And I was like, that is, that really fits into one of the main um, keys to understanding this passage that I had in my mind. So Charles Dickens is known for his huge plots that involve several characters and at the beginning of the book they seem completely unrelated right and then by the end of the book he weaves them all together in this net that you know they're inseparable by the Mm -hmm. end of the book right Bleak House is probably my favorite for that very thing well the book that I just started is Pickwick Papers I haven't read it yet but the introduction describes that The creation of this is different than his other novels because it was someone else's idea. It was an illustrator who wanted to have his illustrations published. And so he hired Dickens as a writer to write a small script each week or whatever it was, each month, I think, to go along with his illustration. So at the beginning of the project, these were truly random, varied characters that actually didn't have very much connection to each other. But the illustrator died. During the project. And so Dickens is left with, you know, he's got this contract with the publisher, so he's got to finish the project. So he has to hire a new illustrator, but now he's in control. And the introduction that I read was just praising his mastery of taking these truly random stories and going back and picking up themes from them that he could weave together and and try it's not, it's not like his other novels, but try to bring these characters together in some sort of a plot. I think when we view the storyline of the Bible and, and God's story of redemptive history, we can often fall into the mindset that he put it together like Dickens put together the Pickwick Papers, that these different things happened and God had to kind of pick up the pieces, weave them together, and boom, here's here's the solution. But what we have to understand is that God was orchestrating all of history from the beginning. That's what uh, the prophets mean when they say that he is telling the end from the beginning. He's at the beginning able to already tell you what the end of the story is. And so he crafts history to lead to that end. He's not having to pick up threads and force them together. And that's going to that's going to be a really important point as we look at this section today. So today we're going to be talking about the fact that Jesus is a minister of a better covenant. He begins this section in chapter 8 by giving a summary of what has come before. Um, And so I want us to think back over what we've come through and how it has led us to this point. He started out saying that Jesus is better than the angels. Then he went into Jesus is better than Moses. And what we covered last week is that Jesus is better than the priesthood. But the fascinating thing about all of those is that these are each pieces that lead up to the new covenant. Really, I think it would be safe to say that a longer version of the theme of Hebrews would be the new covenant is better than the old covenant because Jesus is better. Because each of the sections that he's covered so far deal with this new covenant. I think it's pretty obvious that Moses, we connect Moses with the old covenant. And so it would be pretty natural to compare Moses with the new covenant or the, the mediator of a new covenant. The one that I think we're less familiar with is the fact that angels are associated with the old covenant as well, and specifically with the giving of the law. Paul tells us in Galatians three nineteen that the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Angels are connected to the giving of the law. So this is the way that my mind organized the whole beginning part of the book leading up to the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Jesus is better; is the better communicator. He's better than the angels who were the ones who communicated the law. Jesus is the better mediator. Because Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the New Covenant. And Jesus is the better administrator of the Covenant, which would be comparing him to the priesthood. Huh. So, and that was not something that when I was first going through angels, or even Moses or the priesthood, like, I mean, I knew that Moses and the priesthood had something to do with the law and everything, but I, I wasn't, it wasn't so clear in my mind that this passage talking about the New Covenant is the point of the book. (laughs) This is where it's all pointing to. Um, Let's get into a little bit of um, some other ways that we can see that this is where the author of Hebrews was leading all along. He gave us a few hints from the very beginning of the book that we should have been picking up on and probably his Jewish readers were picking up on. Actually, he's going to say some things that would have caused like red flags in the mind of a Jewish reader. First of all, uh, starting verse one, chapter one, verse one, he says that Jesus um, is the the communicator of God and that that's how God is speaking to us right now. So right off the bat, we know he's going to he's going to be comparing Jesus with the other communicators, the prophets and things like that. And that would have to a Jewish person to compare someone to the prophets was a big deal, right? And then um, in chapter two, verses one through three, we have that first warning where he contrasts Jesus' message with the message of the angels um, and says Jesus' message deserves even more attention because it's more, um, I don't want to say more important because the other message wasn't more important as well, but but the communicator himself demands more attention. Then um, we start to see another hint that we've seen throughout the book um, are some titles for Christ. And then starting in verse 7, excuse me, chapter 7, then he really starts to make it very obvious that this is the direction that he's headed. So he compares Melchizedek's line and Levi's line, And says some pretty um, shocking things about the Levitical priesthood. And then um, one of those things is the inability of the Levitical priesthood um, to make people perfect. And so even in chapter 7, he is pointing out um, the inadequacy of the law and the inadequacy of the Old Covenant. But in addition to that, he also makes explicit statements that would have demanded support would have demanded further explanation so um, for instance in chapter 7 verse 12 he says for when there is a law in the uh, excuse me when there is a change in the priesthood there is necessarily a change in the law as well this points to the interconnectedness of the priesthood and the law and not even just interconnectedness like there isn't any part of the law that is separate from the priesthood. Um, Priests were the ones who determined whether you're clean or unclean. Priests were the ones that you came to uh, with your sacrifice that you were making to God. Every part of the law revolves around the, the priesthood and the tabernacle. And so it's very clear that when he says the the fact that I'm saying that there's a change in the priesthood is uh, monumental because I'm I am claiming that there must therefore be a change in the law as well and then in verse uh, chapter 7 verses 18 and 19 he says for on the one hand a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect that is a bold statement to say to a Jewish audience. (laughs) So we should expect he's going to come back to this and he's going to park on this. (laughs) Um, And then just one more explicit statement that he makes in chapter seven verses, um, he's referring to God's oath in 20 through 22. And he says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So that's kind of like our segue into, okay, we've we got to park on this better covenant. We have to talk about this better covenant. And um, I just want to, today we are not going to be able to go through the passage verse by verse. We're not going to be able to really be be systematic in that way. So the way that I want to cover this section is to bring out key concepts that he weaves throughout the section. And I just took colored pencil and thought, hmm, he said this word a lot. Let me see how many times he said this word. I'll underline it in red, and boom, 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 you know. Then they pop off the page. Okay, now this this section, this concept seems to be repeated. I'll underline this in yellow or whatever. And it's neat when you do it that way because it's much easier to just visually see the progression of thought through this passage and the repetition of thought through this passage. So... Let's jump into the key, (laughs) key concepts from this section. The first one is huge, huge. And this is the fact that the Old Testament actually teaches New Covenant ideas. This is not something that should have come as a surprise to the Jewish people. This is an idea that if they had been paying attention to their Old Testament... they were reading. They should have expected these things to come to pass. The first um, proof that he uses of this is probably the harder one for us to get our minds around, and this takes us back to my introduction about the way that Dickens put together his novels. Did he start with the grand theme in mind, or did he have to pick the pieces up later and weave them together? And I really think at least for me and i think for a lot of christians we view the messiah concept as picking to picking up the pieces that are in the old testament and saying oh you know what i i think i could connect him back to the priests and that would help them understand this concept of the messiah or oh i think i could probably use this analogy and it would it would become clearer in their minds I remember the first time that somebody really emphasized the fact that Jesus fulfills a lot of the aspects of the law and and things. And I thought, that is so fascinating. But it was a paradigm shift in my mind to think of it as the other way around. And that's what the author of Hebrews does here in the beginning of chapter eight. And then again, in the beginning of chapter nine, he covers the fact that Old Testament law, The priestly system, the tabernacle, the individual pieces of the tabernacle, the whole regulation for worship, all of that was a copy. It was a shadow of heavenly realities that already were. And he says, you should have picked this up. Um, he, he has a high expectation of his readers <laughs> in a few places. And this is one of them that's like, nope, I never would have gotten that. I needed your spirit-inspired uh, explanation of this because I never would have picked up on it. But I, I think uh, I think he's, he, he's on to something. I mean, I know he is on something. <laughs> um, he says, when Moses was about to erect the tent, He was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Those meticulous details about the tabernacle, how the dimensions of the sections, uh, the dimensions of the cloth that was going to cover it, what color things were going to be, what material they were going to be made out of, all those sections that we, our eyes gloss over as we try to read them. God is saying, this is like a blueprint of the reality that already is. In relation to Christ, that means that God did not say, hmm, you know what, I could say that my Messiah is like a priest because they understand priests. It was the other way around. He designed the old covenant. He designed the law to be centered around the priesthood in order to prepare his people for the Messiah. He, he designed the priests after the Messiah, not the other way around. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there are certain realities that, that we'll get into a little bit later, but the fact that um, Jesus' priesthood, um, the fact that he he made one single sacrifice, the fact that blood was necessary, um, the seriousness of our sin against God that it deserves a blood sacrifice—those things were not imposed into the law and then just, you know, transferred over into Jesus' sacrifice. No, these were realities before the law. You can even see that from Scripture, from the fact that. Um, the patriarchs, and even all the way back to Abel, they were making blood sacrifices, right? Mm. This what this has been a reality since before the law.
0: And God even made a blood sacrifice to cover Adam and Eve in the garden when That's they right. originally sinned.
1: That's right. It has always been true that the wages of sin is death. It has always been true that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins and the law was given to be a, a living um, object lesson to the people of god this would be ingrained into the very being of who they were they would know that in order to relate to god you must have a mediator you must have a blood sacrifice We are not able of ourselves to just come into God's presence. So the first idea that we can see from the Old Testament is that the heavenly realities were the foundation and that the law was merely a copy. It was a shadow of those realities. The second way that the New, the Old Testament teaches the New Covenant is uh, very explicitly, and that is the remainder of chapter 8. He quotes a large section from the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. This is not just an obscure passage in the Old Testament. Every Jew would have known about this. This was huge. Now, I don't blame them for not knowing exactly how it was going to come about and all that. We have all kinds of prophecies that are clear, but we just don't know what they're going to look like when they get here. But he, what he's saying is the new covenant is not a new idea. God has been promising it for, eight, for years. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and read through this section. It is so clear. It really doesn't need that much explanation. Jeremiah says, and then the, the author of Hebrews quotes, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's pretty clear. (laughs) He just states... At the beginning, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I brought them out of Egypt. So the people of God should have been looking for this. Yes, it was going to be surprising how it came about. Yes, there were things that they would need to change about their thinking, but they should have been accepting this is coming. So then he summarizes that point by saying, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the Old Testament taught this idea of a new covenant. The next key concept that we really need to get as we study through this passage is the um, idea of a Repetitive or continuous need for sacrifices versus a single sacrifice for sins. So it's pretty obvious, we already covered this in chapter 7, that the priests were sinners. They had to actually bring sacrifices for their own sins before they could offer for the sins of the people. And so because the priests were sinners, um, they could not perfectly fulfill the the responsibility of the priesthood and they couldn't do it forever because they died because they were sinners and Jesus is the perfect high priest so he never had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins it's interesting Jesus is both the priest making the sacrifice and then he's also the one being sacrificed so there's there's a connection there um, that the animal sacrifices that those sinful priests were making They could never take away sin. And the author of Hebrews here uses just logical reasoning. Okay, if the animal that I bring to the altar is taking away my sin, then I should never have to bring another animal to this altar, right? Because my sin has been taken away. But that's not how it worked. I would go back home and I would sin again and I would have to bring another animal sacrifice. Because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin they were always um, designed to cover the sin of the one sacrificing but they could not take away sin just by the very nature that of the fact that they had to be um, offered repeatedly but jesus and and he also he, he uses another little um logical conclusion that if jesus blood did not take away sin then Jesus would have to be offered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. So he's using a you know, logical de- deduction on either side because these have to be repeatedly offered. They are not taking away sin because Jesus' offering was a once-for-all-time offering. It did take away sin. Um, and then even the idea of the fact that the priests are standing while... and daily having to offer these sacrifices, they can't sit down because their job's never done because Israelites keep sinning. (laughs) Um, But Jesus, after he finished his work and after he uh, accomplished a once-for-all sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. The third um, major concept that this passage, chapters 8 through 10, really deals with is the idea of a blood sacrifice that blood was necessary and this is another th- thing that would be very very familiar to a Jew very um all the way back to well like we we discussed some of the before the um law was given back to the passover itself the fact that they had to put blood on their doorposts in order for the firstborn in their house to be saved the idea of blood sacrifice um being the remedy for sins was ingrained in these people. And so that's what he comes back to this time, that that is the same thing for the new covenant as well. And so um, the first point he makes under this is that blood purifies. He talks about the fact that Moses sprinkled various things, the, the people, the book of the covenant, he, he sprinkled pieces in the tabernacle, um, to purify them, to, um, and so blood always had a purification um, element. But there was also a forgiveness element. He, this is where we have that wonderful um, statement, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That has always been true, and it's still true in the New Covenant today. Um, and then the third one is that death is required for a will to take effect. Chapter 9 Verses 15 and following, he's been using the word covenant all throughout. New covenant, old covenant, was obsolete. And then he switches to, in the ESV, it says, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. But, and I don't know Greek, but the commentaries that I read said that this is actually the same word as the word for covenant. So, either... And I think it's both, but um, anyway, either it means a will as in like, you know, when, when someone dies and that's, that's really, when you read through the passage, it says uh, a will takes effect only at death since it's not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. That sounds like a will in the way that we, we still conceive of a will today. But if you take it to mean covenant, it could also fit because if, if you go back through the different covenants, um, Noah, Abraham, Moses, there's always a blood sacrifice associated with the inauguration of the covenant. So, either way, whether it's talking about a will as we think of a will today, or whether it's just continuing this idea of covenant, in both instances, death is required and blood is required. So, we've seen so far the key concepts that I think help us to be able to better understand this section is that the Old Testament actually teaches the idea that a new covenant is coming to replace the old. And this can be seen also in the comparison of the continuous nature of the old covenant um, sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, versus Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. And um, also by the importance of blood, the necessity of blood to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. So that brings us to the purpose of it all. What is the point of this passage? What is the point of emphasizing all of this about covenant and blood and sacrifices and all of that? The truth underlying all of this and demanding that we give attention to it is that every person... Has sin that must be dealt with. From the time Adam and Eve sinned, humanity has had this problem of sin that must be dealt with. And God, in His mercy, gave through the law a very clear picture of the way that He views human sin. A very clear picture of our inability to access him on our own. So therefore the necessity of a mediator. And a very clear picture of the remedy of sin in a blood sacrifice. So Jewish people would have understood this as a part of their very nature. This was ingrained into them. So the author of Hebrews really wants to be um, clear that although the law gave a wonderful picture of these things, in itself it was inadequate to deal with sin at the heart level. He says that the law could never perfect the worshiper. The law dealt only with external purification In chapter nine, verse nine, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So he's saying, even in the Old Testament system, there was no way to, for the the blood sacrifice that was um, shed to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So, of course, that's going to bring up the question, so then were Old Testament Israelites cleansed in their conscience? And the answer is, of course, yes. And the author of Hebrews says it it was through Jesus' once-for-all-time sacrifice. We are very, very okay with the idea that Jesus' once-for-all-time sacrifice dealt with sins that occurred after the cross— But the author of Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus, once for all time, sacrifice also dealt with sins that occurred before the cross by faith. And that's what we're going to get into in the next section. But this concept of faith is consistent through the whole Bible, that the just shall live by faith. We're going to get into that in the next section. Um, Paul talks about that in detail. So we see it all through the New Testament, but all through the Old Testament as well that righteousness comes through faith. That was the case for Old Testament believers as well as New Testament believers. They didn't know the f- the fullness of what it was going to look like, but they had faith in God and that faith motivated them to follow the requirements of the law and the requirements that God set forth. For taking care of their sins. But um, the author of Hebrews comes back in, um, in chapter 10. He references Psalm 40 and quotes it as, a, as a, um, a quote of the Messiah himself, saying to God, "...sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure." Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So he's saying, even in the Old Testament, and we ha- he just picked out one passage. He could have quoted a lot of passages. God was very clear about this. I really, it's not that I need an animal right now. Like, it, literally, it's not like I'm, I, I'm hungry and I need a meal so you kill me an animal or something. The purpose of the sacrifice was to reveal the heart of the worshiper. If I have faith that God is going to forgive this sin that I've just committed, I express that faith through following God's prescribed way of taking care of it. Another way that that we see this idea of sins have to be dealt with, not just the fact that the Old Testament was inadequate to do it, um, but the New Covenant promises total forgiveness of sins. Um, as he was talking about the continuous first single offering, the idea that they had to keep sacrificing showed that um, that system was not adequate to completely take away or completely forgive their sins. But in the quotation from Jeremiah about the new covenant, one of the promises is, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And so the author of Hebrews concludes, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no more need for a sacrifice for sins. Jesus' one-time sacrifice perfectly deals with sin, and it secures an eternal redemption. Um, it purifies our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. There, it, He just over and over again, I, I think these are direct quotes from the passage. He, he comes back to it in many, many ways. The fact that our problem is sin, and the Old Covenant... Um, presented a picture of what God's remedy was, but that picture was always pointing to the need for a once-for-all sacrifice by a perfect offering. This would have been difficult for Christians to to decipher, what is my relationship now to this old system, and how does that relate to Christ? Um, But they did have the advantage, an advantage over us, because all of these, they wouldn't have needed anyone to explain this. I mean, they obviously did because he's having to do it right now. But they understood the ideas that he's presenting. They just needed someone to explain them that Christ fulfilled those ideas. But they understood that their sin needed a sacrifice, that their sin kept them from God, and that they needed a mediator between them and God. So as we think about Christians today, it could almost be like, wow. These are such big concepts. How are we ever supposed to have that same advantage, that same um, benefit of very familiar with these systems? And of course, one way is by reading the Old Testament and reading the book of Hebrews and studying the book of Hebrews will change the way you read your Old Testament. It's impossible not to, especially the books in in the five books of Moses. But God in his grace has given us constant reminders, right? Mm -hmm. Our church does it once a month. Some churches do it once a week. Some do it once a quarter. But Jesus, before he left, he told his followers do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper, where we take of the body and blood of the Lord. He says this is to be a remembrance. This is to be a constant reminder for you. The Old Old Testament saints had constant reminders in bringing a sacrifice to the temple. New covenant believers have a constant reminder of our one-time sacrifice when we partake of these elements that represent his sacrifice.
0: That is a lot of truth to wrap our heads around. And sometimes we as 21st century believers Mm -hmm. um, forget that we are free from sin Mm -hmm. through Christ. So I know you've said it several times, but can you just put the truth that you just gave us into boots so that we can get practical with what we're each struggling with today.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, These truths are the foundation that we can build our faith on, but then that faith must be put into practice in our lives, right? And so for a believer back then and a believer today, we still come to God through faith, right? And our faith must be in the finished work of Jesus that his once-for-all sacrifice actually does take away my sin and kind of like we we saw that it took a, it takes away the sin that happened uh, for believers before the cross but it also takes away sin for the believers that happens after the cross I think another hang-up for Christians is that somehow we think that the moment of my salvation I somehow relate to God on a different level. As if Jesus' death on the cross dealt with my sins before I got saved and I repented of all those and he paid for those. And now, every time I sin, I've got to go back and do it all again. That is not... (laughs) Jesus' death on the cross paid for the sins that I have not yet committed. Right? That the way that I relate to God is the same... Every time I sin, I come to him on the basis of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. And the forgiveness that I experience is still based on Jesus' sacrifice. There is nothing that I can do to make penance for my sin. There's nothing that I can do to uh, negate the work that Jesus did on the cross. And that is such a comfort for believers who struggle with guilt. We should feel sorrow over our sin, and it should be a sorrow that leads us to repentance. And we should feel the boldness that the the author of Hebrews talks about, the boldness to come before the throne of grace and receive mercy, because it's already been purchased on the cross. We are not having to uh, re-save ourselves every time we confess a sin.
0: And it's not just that we don't have to resave ourselves, it's we don't have to gain God's favor every time, too. Yes. Um, and that's another hang-up we have as 21st century believers. We see God as angry at us as mm. sinners, but we don't realize that God loved us, mm. and that is why He came to the earth to die oh. for us. Yes. Um, First John 4:10 says, "In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Mm-hmm. It's because he already loved us that he chose to save us. not because someday we will earn his favor. yes, not because someday we will be good enough for him, but it's because he chose us mm-hmm. because of who he is. Yes and that itself is freedom too
1: oh that is so freeing yes
0: so i i love this concept jamie of tying the old testament to the new testament and it kind of gives me chills every, yeah, t- yeah. every single time i go back to the old testament and see a new portion of the tabernacle or a passage in psalms or i was reading isaiah earlier this year and I mean, it's said in plain language that everyone must die from their sins, Mm. and someday God is going to save the entire world, not just Mm. Jews. It was like, oh, chills. God (laughs) knew this from the beginning. This was his plan. Yes. (laughs) Um, So it's a challenge for all of us to take our Old Testament and cherish it, and not just read through it so we can get to the New Testament in our annual reading plan. Yes. (laughs) Yes. this wraps up today but if you guys want to read along with us there is a reading plan as i referenced before go to truthandboots.com and you can find it on the first episode there's a link to download it so you can check off stuff also to be sure you don't miss the next part of the series um be sure to subscribe whether you're using your apple Podcasts, google or, or whatever source you have um Just hit the subscribe button so that way you can always make sure you have the next episode. We will see you back here next week.